so tonight we want to finish first Timothy. Turn in your Bibles to first Timothy chapter six. We're going to be starting in verse 17. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 through 19. What we're going to see here is Paul, if you recall back in verses 3 through 10, Paul had been talking about money, wealth, the love of money, largely in reference to false teachers, that, and not only that, but the dangers of money and, and kind of how it impacts people negatively. Here, what we're going to see is he wants to instruct believers who are wealthy. And so he's going to provide some instruction here in these verses, verses 17 through 19. So let's read those and then we'll dive into the text in the workbook. He says this in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so in verse 17, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. After teaching on the dangers of the love of money earlier, Paul expanded his instructions now to wealthy believers. Notice again, and we'll say this again, and I think it, it says it in the workbook later, but it, it's okay to be wealthy as a believer. It's okay to be a believer and to have wealth. There's nothing sinful about money in and of itself. And so, you know, many people have, you know, maybe, maybe misunderstood that truth over the years, but it's okay to be wealthy and be a believer. In fact, if it wasn't, then Paul would, would instruct them to give away all their money and, and don't be rich, right? And that's not what he's saying. He's going to give some instructions, basically saying that if you you do possess material wealth, that God God may have given that to you in order to, to use it through you to help build the local church or, or help build the church in general across the world. And so, but one of the things we're going to see is that even for believers that wealth can be, can have pitfalls that come along with them. If, if not, I guess, taken in perspective, if, if they're focused upon. And, and so we'll kind of get into that here in this section as well, but the word instruct is a present tense imperative. So it means it's a command. And right then and there in Ephesus, Paul wanted Timothy to immediately and continually educate wealthy believers on the delicate subject of riches. In some churches, they talk about money all the time. At least it feels like that way. And I know that's a, a common criticism of some churches. I think in some churches, the, the money's probably not talked about enough. There's a benefit to every believer in terms of how they give and how they support the ministry of the church. Paul has no problem with Timothy going straight to wealthy believers and instructing them. In fact, he wants them to do it. He, he feels like this is an urgent thing to do. It's interesting that Paul, you notice these things as you go through the text, but it says he commands those who are rich in this present world. Why so specific? Well, Paul knew that in the world to come, we will all be fabulously wealthy beyond all conceivable imagination. And so he's talking specifically about this world. I love, I love how first Corinthians two, nine puts it. When Paul writes, 
But it is as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them. There's going to be things that we see. You see that other passage in Revelation 21, which we won't read. The common materials in heaven are, are what's wealthy here. You know, we you hear you hear about streets of gold, you know, streets made of gold. And that's interesting, you know, because what we make our streets out of, although they cost money, they're not valuable. You know, you don't have women walking around with, you know, asphalt necklaces on or anything like that. So just interesting, the most valuable metals that we that have that hold such value in our culture are going to be, you know, what the streets paved up, up in heaven. Just to put it in perspective, there's going to be riches, wealth, you know, beyond comprehension there. So it specifically identifies those who are wealthy in this present world. And again, he didn't condemn these wealthy believers for being rich. Having wealth is not a sin. It's not a sign of carnality, nor is it something of which to be ashamed. It's also important to see that Paul did not tell believers to give all their money away as Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Remember, Jesus largely did that. Why? To expose the fact that this this man's money was his idol, that he was greedy and that he worshiped money. And so Jesus used that to illustrate that to, or to expose that man at the time. But Paul doesn't say, hey, give it all away. In the sense of don't give all your wealth away, don't be wealthy. That's the wrong thing. It's it's okay for believers to be wealthy. Because one of the things that we see is that Jesus Christ wants to use people of every economic level in the edification of his church. And nevertheless, here in this passage, Paul gave seven exhortations to wealthy believers to show them how they could be meaningfully used by God in the advancement of his purposes. God wants to use I believe all believers and their material possessions to give believers another avenue to bear fruit. God is, you know, God is the vine dresser. He is passionate about his branches bearing fruit. And so oftentimes material possessions, the, the giving of them, the sharing of them with others within the church, either, either on an individual level or a corporate level supporting ministry gives believers an opportunity to bear fruit. I want to show you a passage in Philippians chapter 4 that was very encouraging to me years ago. I remember going to Liberia and and you know, I won't you know, I'm not going to identify you know names here uh, by by any stretch, but you know, there there have been trips that you know, I've prepared to take to Liberia where quite frankly, we we had a shortfall, you know, in terms of financial you know, financial support. You know, I remember there's been a couple of times and it's been a couple of different believers who have basically just said, you know, Hey, how much more do you need? What do you need? What are you lacking? You know, I remember one year in particular, there was, there was somebody that really gave a a great sum of money. It was very, it was very generous, overly, in my opinion, overly generous. I, I was really astounded um, just by their their generosity. It really touched me because of their interest in the ministry and their willingness to give. It was around that time I think I was reading through Philippians, and this just really stuck out to me. And I and I shared this not only with this person but also others who have given to the ministry to Liberia over the years. But in Philippians four verses fourteen through seventeen, let, let's read that, and then let me just kind of make a comment on on what I saw and what was encouraging. But verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well 
that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And then notice what Paul says here. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And that's when it hit me. Giving is not about, it wasn't about Paul. Now, Paul had needs and God met his needs through the giving. But but giving ultimately drops back a layer. It's like it's like peeling the layer back of an onion. And when one believer gives to a ministry, it's incredible that even though they may, may never see the ministry with their own eyes, they may never set foot. You know, for Paul, this is this is a church in Philippi. They never set foot in Thessalonica. And yet through their giving, the, the believers in Philippi were going to bear fruit, some of the spiritual fruit through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica, even though they'd never been there. And you say, wow, that's incredible because why should they get credit? Because, because the Spirit of God motivated them to give and he was honored in their giving toward this ministry that they're going to bear fruit now in Thessalonica. And so I've always kind of viewed that, you know, the, the same kind of concept in Liberia that, that people that give toward the ministry in Liberia, they have, they have no idea, but one day, if you could imagine this one day in heaven, a, a Liberian coming up to you and saying, thank you for the money that you gave to Liberia. It's because of that, that dollar, that $20, whatever it is, that I was able to hear the gospel that, that, you know, the messengers of God that were sent on that particular trip or to my particular church wouldn't have been here if you had not just sacrificially given or given of yourself. And it's just, it's just encouraging to know that, that God oftentimes uses the, the generosity of believers through their material possessions to actually give them an avenue to bear additional fruit in their own life. So it's just, just incredible to kind of think of that way. And so, you know, clearly going back to first Timothy six, clearly there's a value for, for anyone in the church at any economic level, but specifically here, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to instruct the wealthy believers. And he's going to give them some instructions here. In fact, seven exhortations we see. And the first one is to be humble. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited. Wealthy believers are not to be high-minded, proud, or arrogant. They're not to assume that their material wealth indicates a fuller blessing from the Lord or elevates them to a special status of superiority to others. In fact, it's probably this arrogance that's one of the ways that people can stray from the faith. You know, and back back in verse 10, you know, Paul mentioned that the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for some which have strayed from the faith in their greediness and over confidence, this arrogance through wealth is, is probably one way some believers can stray from the faith. So he says, don't, don't be conceited, be, be humble. It's interesting because there's, there's a, a level of confidence or security that comes with money. Sometimes having money in your, in your pocket, money in the bank, that sometimes we cross the line and we're going to kind of see how that kind of plays itself out in verse 17, because what ends up happening is we end up trusting in money and we stop trusting in the Lord. And 
that's that's not the design that God have had by allowing us to become wealthy. Those of us who might be wealthy or have had wealth, that's not the reason God gave it to you so that you become more independent. Many times God gives wealth in order to funnel it through you to others. And he's looking for us to respond in, in faithfulness and utilizing that money and being good stewards with it. He also says uh, his instruction is to be judicious. He tells them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And wealthy believers are not to fix their hope on riches. Riches can literally be here today and gone tomorrow. Things like unstable economies, changing political climates, war, health, and theft. All these things can destroy wealth. Remember that the word hope itself, where it says not to fix their hope, means confident expectation. You know, it means to confidently expect that it'll be there. And, you know, riches always seem like they'll be around forever when you've got them. But those of us that have lived long enough, we, we've seen the ebbs and flows of what it's like to have a little bit more money in the bank account and a little less. And, and just the, the ebbs and flows of wealth, because many things impact wealth. And so Paul is just, you know, again, strategic teaching to to take wealthy believers and keep their minds fixed on things above not on things on the earth he says to be intentional you know to instruct those who are rich in this present world to fix their hope on god who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy so instead of the uncertainty of riches wealthy believers are to fix their hope on god who unlike money never changes and it's it's interesting that paul uses the word living here. He, he says on, he says, um, going back to the text there in verse, uh, 17, he says, nor to trust in the uncertainty rich, but, but to trust in the living God. And it's, you know, this idea that he, he cares, he's, he's involved. He's, he's alive. He sees what's going on is kind of the idea. Letter a, when this verse says that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, it means that everything that originates from him, uh, those things that he freely gives us are given for or towards the goal of our pleasure. One of the things that's so interesting, you know, as we as we talk about the gospel and as we realize, you know, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, Romans 8.32 says this, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And you know, the, the idea there that, you know, the, the point that Paul is communicating is if God did not spare the most valuable possession that he had, which was his son, the most valuable prize or treasure in heaven, why would he not spare everything else for our enjoyment? If he didn't spare the big thing, why, why would he hold back little things? That's kind of the idea. And so, you know, this is one of those things, you know, this is a promise that we can take to the bank that, that God wants us to to enjoy the things that he gives to us in this life he he wants us to enjoy them they're designed to enjoy but it's kind of like the ecclesiastes series and one of the themes that came out of there we can enjoy those things but it's it's as we're in fellowship with him that we fully enjoy everything it's as we enjoy not not only the gift but we also enjoy the hand of the giver the fellowship that comes with uh, this relationship that we now possess with the God of the universe. So it's very important to know that, that God wants us to enjoy things that he supplies us with. That's okay. It's not sinful <laughs> to enjoy things that he's provided us with, these gifts. 
Now notice this verse does not simply say that God gives us all things. It says that he richly supplies us all things to enjoy. So he doesn't, while he doesn't give us all things like my neighbor's house, everything he does supply is richly supplied with our enjoyment in view. And you know what? It's in knowing this principle, going back to the verse, that we can trust him in what he provides. See, in contrast to trusting riches, why not trust the God who is going to give you everything that you need and everything is going to be richly supplied for your enjoyment in view? Why not say, you know what? I'll go for that. You know, that's that's the life I want. That's, that's what I'm going to hope in. That's where my confident expectation is going to be. Not in having X amount of dollars in my savings account or in my 401k or wherever. Now in Proverbs 10, 22, Solomon expressed a similar thought when he said, it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. Just kind of just very good, succinct statement of what we've just been talking about. Uh, again, coming from the pen of Solomon. The next four exhortations are closely related. So we're going to move quickly through there. In verse 18, he basically gives the instruction or the exhortation to be gracious. He says, instruct them to do good. And he's talking again about the wealthy believers. So although every believer should do good, Paul asked Timothy to specifically instruct the wealthy to be careful to maintain good works. In fact, he goes on to say that in the very next phrase instruct them to be rich in good works. And so, although wealthy believers are able to do more because of their material wealth, we got to remember this is God's goal and desire for every believer. In fact, uh, go to Ephesians uh, 2.10, you know, it, uh, another verse that should be familiar to us, but, you know, Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tell us, you know, how we get saved. It's It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not of yourselves. It's not something that you have to, it's not your ongoing faithfulness. It's, it's a gift. It's not of works. God doesn't want you boasting about your salvation in terms of boasting about yourself and what you've accomplished, but boasting about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished is definitely allowable and encouraged. And so he tells us, you know, how to get saved in verses 8 and 9, we see it's not by works. So where do good works fit in? Well, Ephesians 2.10. That's where Ephesians 2.10 is just a great balance, uh, giving the whole story, if you will. Not only how you get saved, but then how does God want us to live after we get saved? And in verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you know, one of the things that not only wealthy believers need to be convinced of, but also any, any believer that that'd be you and me uh, as well, is that God wants to use you and God wants to utilize you. God has a plan for your life. He has good works that he's designed you and I, each one of us to walk in. Now, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating the good works he wants me to walk in are not the good works necessarily that he wants you to walk in. He's got the good works designed for me based on my skill set, based on my spiritual gifting, based on my location in the world, etc. And the same is true for each believer. You know, it's, what's interesting is there's typically a variety of responses to that that principle. The two extremes are 
some people say, what? He wants to use me? How, how could he ever use me? I'm so, I'm so incredibly useless. I've got nothing to offer. And then you've got the other extreme of, well, yeah, I know God wants to use me because I'm something pretty special. And then you've got probably everything in between little shades of meaning. But, you know, from the person who, who feels like there's, they've got nothing to offer God, the encouragement is that, that God wants to offer himself through you to accomplish things in and through you. And he's got good works that he's designed you to walk in, but you'll never do that when you're focused on yourself. You only do that as you're occupied with him. And then for those who are, who are almost overconfident that they've got a lot of skill set that, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to be used by God because I'm so good at this, this, and this. They too need a reorientation to their thinking that they need to rely upon the Lord, walk by faith, present themselves to him, not make up in their minds what good works they're going to do, but actually as they're presented to the Lord, then they just respond to the Lord's leading throughout their life to engage in the good works that he's designed, not the good works that they've come up with on their own. So that kind of brings uh, hopefully both extremes back into balance. But one of the good works that God may have designed for wealthy believers is to give of their wealth to, to further the building of the church. And so that may be one of those good works. And so Timothy's saying, Hey, be, be ready for it. Be on the lookout for those opportunities. Be rich in good works because God wants to use you in that way. Be liberal. And he says, instruct them to be generous and wealthy believers are instructed to be charitable. Wealthy believers are in a position to contribute heavily toward their local churches and missions. You notice Timothy was not instructed to tell them where, when, or how to be generous. You know, many false teachers will tell you where, when, and how to be generous. And typically it involves putting your money in, in their pocket, right? So he's not, he's not getting on that level of detail. In fact, no one has that right over any believer, wealthy or otherwise. God simply wanted Timothy to instruct the wealthy to use their assets to actively bless others and thus build up the body of Christ. Again, it's just that concept that oftentimes God allows believers to become wealthy. Why? So that, so that those believers might be funnels of God's blessing to others. And they need to be ready to respond and walk by faith and respond to the Lord's leading in their life as to where that money should go, where that extra money, that extra wealth could go. And that kind of feeds into number eight, which is to be ready. First Timothy, you know, there in 618, he says, be ready to give. And so the, the phrase emphasizes that wealthy believers need to be prepared for God to use them. It might be wise for them to be, to put aside money that they exclusively use for benevolence. And the idea is just, just be available when we, when we've got extra money to, to, to just kind of be thinking this way that, wow, I've got this extra money. Maybe I ought to put some of it aside and anticipate opportunities where God's going to want to use me. And you'd be surprised. Oftentimes, you know, these opportunities come to those who are prepared, available and looking for them rather than, you know, for, you know, the, the old, the old proverb of waiting for God to hit, hit us in the head with a two by four. We actually present, be available and be ready by setting aside money possibly so that when opportunities arise, we're like, oh, here's an opportunity God may want me to use it for. And so we're ready to, to move out and to share with others. 
And then he says in uh, number nine, be be investors. Um, Verse 19, this concept of storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. And one of the things by engaging in good works mentioned here in these verses, wealthy believers will actually store up treasure for themselves in heaven where material wealth does not go with a person when they die. And this type of treasure does. And, you know, obviously 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 talks about how we must all appear before the, the Bema judgment of Christ, where the things we've done in the, in the body, whether good or bad will be evaluated, whether fruitful or unfruitful are going to be evaluated. We see the same concept shared in first Corinthians chapter three, uh, verses 11 through 15, where the foundation of Jesus Christ is laid and that no other foundation can be laid. Paul tells us, but then all of the works that we build on that foundation will be evaluated through fire and the, the works that are built from good material. In other words, they're coming from the resources we possess in Christ. We're executing those works by means of the spirit, not just in our own strength. We, we've got proper motives because we're walking by faith in the Lord as we do these good works. Those are going to last and those are going to bear fruit and, and also bear or, or provide a reward. And so this is, this is a great way. If, if a person has extra money, they're wealthy to by faith say, you know what? I'm going to use this money. I'm going to set this aside looking for opportunities where God may want to use it. That's walking by faith. And that is investing in this future evaluation of good works. He also says, be blessed uh, so that they may take hold of that, which is life indeed. And although money may seem like the doorway to success and happiness in truth, it causes much harm to those who are consumed by it. On the other hand, when wealth is used for God's glory, it leads to true and abundant living. It's interesting, you know, back in verse 12, we made a big deal of that phrase, lay hold on eternal life. And it was lay hold on the eternal life. And, and actually the same construction is used here. It's just kind of interesting. The the eternal life, the, the life is articulated. It's talking about... Jesus Christ. It's talking about abundant life. And so not only, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, you could use this, you know, as a, as a uh, church leader, as a missionary, you could use this really, you could use this truth really manipulatively. You could say, and and many false teachers do, don't they? They say, Hey, if you give, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be, you're going to benefit from it. But typically what they mean is like, if you sow, you know, and I, you hear them say this, well, if you sow a seed, God's going to give it back to you tenfold. And so some, some people say, man, if I give the preacher or this missionary a thousand dollars and he gives it and God's going to give it back to me tenfold, I'm going to make $10,000. And it's like, man, I can't get that investment on the stock market. Let me do that. And so there's like this misguided view of that. But what Paul is saying here is that there is true blessing in giving and being used by God and being motivated by God to give from one's wealth. There is true blessing. It may not come back in material blessing, but there is going to be this laying hold on eternal life, this, this abundant life. And then just knowing that, that as a wealthy believer, those who give, they're being utilized in God's building project, that, that they're being utilized, they're, they're co-laborers, that they got a role and a function in what God is doing on earth through his church. 
I guess what Paul is saying is that is life indeed, that they would take hold of what, what truly matters, not say, well, I've got extra money. So now I'm going to buy the biggest boat in the neighborhood, or I'm, I've got extra money. Now I'm going to move to a different neighborhood in terms of having a boat, buying a bigger, those are all fine. The point is this, that's not where life is. We, we understand that, that there's a blessing in, in giving. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here and instructing Timothy to emphasize with the wealthy believers there in Ephesus. And so in verse 20, we move to the closing instructions to Timothy. And it's an interesting way that Paul starts verse, verse 20. Let's, let's read verses 20 and 21, and then let's make some comments. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And it's interesting how Paul starts here. Oh, Timothy, that, that oh there is a note of exclamation. It's like a, a big sigh, you know, man. Oh, Timothy kind of deal. And so this is how he concludes his intimate personal instructions. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. You know, Timothy was to keep a vigilant watch over what had been entrusted to his care. And what had been entrusted to his care? Well, as we look through the list, it's it's quite a lot. Paul had entrusted Timothy with the care of the church in Ephesus. Among other things, he was responsible to appoint leaders, oppose false teachers, teach the roles of men, women, widows, and slaves, instruct the rich, and live as an authentic role model by maintaining sound doctrine and a consistent walk with the Lord. And, you know, your blank there is, whoa, <laughs> it's kind of the idea. It's like a lot had been entrusted to him. And so the idea from this word that he uses here is to vigilantly guard it. He could faithfully perform his duty by vigilantly guarding all of these things that had been entrusted to him. We get some insight there. There's a, there's a great cross reference. Um, go to second Timothy one That's, this is really a, a great point here. I believe in terms of how does Timothy guard, how does Timothy vigilantly guard And second Timothy one says this, and it's kind of a similar instruction to Timothy years later as he writes, um, as Paul writes second Timothy and hold on one second. I got a bug on my I got a bug on my screen. All right, 2 Timothy 1.14, he says, that good thing which was committed to you, that, that word keep is the same word we have translated guard here. He says, keep by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So how is Timothy to vigilantly guard? By what means? By means of the Holy Spirit. Very important to understand that Paul is not telling Timothy now to Okay, you better guard it with all your strength and, and really crank it out and guard this with your strength. It's He's to guard it by the Spirit of God, by means of the Spirit of God, by really just, I, I think, buying in principally to, to what Paul wants to accomplish here, what the Spirit of God wants to accomplish, and then just walking by faith day by day, moment by moment, executing these uh, instructions, his charge, if you will. So there's a lot to put on his shoulders, but... Again, remember, Paul is not putting these simply on Timothy's shoulders. He is putting these on the shoulders of a man who will walk by means of the Spirit. You know, the Spirit of God can do incredible things 
through a person who's just willing to be presented to him. And so that's what he's encouraging here. Now, Paul had invested a lot of time and truth into Timothy. He wanted Timothy to faithfully pass on to others what had been given to him. And obviously that passage in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 really, really provides that detailed instruction of how he was to do it. He was to find other faithful men who could also uh, be able to teach others going forward in the future. One of the things that Timothy was to do is, and let me go back to 1 Timothy 6, here in this next phrase is he was to avoid worldly and empty chatter. And so Timothy was to guard what had been entrusted to his care by avoiding a couple of things, worldly and empty chatter. You know, what's, what's interesting about this, and I always this always kind of stands out to me as I study the Word of God, the very fact that Paul had to tell Timothy this implies that it's easy to do the opposite. In other words, it's it's easy to engage in worldly and empty chatter. It's just very easy to get drawn into that. So he warns them, don't, don't do that. This is one way that you can guard what was entrusted to you is by avoiding these kind of things. And worldly chatter is just anything that has no relationship to God is worldly. Timothy was to stay away from profane, fruitless, secular babble. Uh, avoid literally means to turn away from or to deflect. Then there's empty chatter. Paul told Timothy to avoid empty debate, useless talk. Earlier, he told Timothy to tell certain men not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So Timothy was to turn away from this kind of foolishness as well, not try to refute it through apologetics or arguments. And these are the kind of things, this this worldly and empty chatter that have absolutely no impact on the Christian life or spiritual growth. And yet many, many believers, Timothy included, there's a natural temptation. This is why Paul is giving them the instruction. There's a natural temptation to gravitate to these kind of things. I don't know why, but if you've ever, if you've ever taken an account or assessment of your life, we get caught into these things. You know, we, we, we're, we're all seeking a balance right now as believers as to how much we get involved in the political scene. An environment, but you know as well as I do that that even in our efforts to be a good citizen, that sometimes we get drawn beyond the line of probably what is healthy for a believer in Jesus Christ. We get drawn into these, you know, some of these conspiracy theories, or we get drawn into some really wild and unfounded claims here and there. We get very irritated by the opposite side of the aisle and the the shenanigans in our mind that they're pulling. And, and there's so much we can just get caught up in. And I, you know, I know even myself that sometimes I'll, I'll be on YouTube and I'll see a video and I'll be like, Oh, just let me watch this five minute video. And before long, I I've hit eight or nine, five minute videos. And I'm like an hour engrossed in what I would consider empty chatter, but it's appealing. It's enjoy. It's kind of fun to listen to. It's kind of fun to get engaged in sometimes. And so these are the kind of things that, that even could entrap Timothy and really distract him from what he was to, to guard. And so the very important to, to recognize and self-assess in our own life, when we're just engaged in these things too much, when they're kind of overtaking you know, our purpose on earth, because, because our purpose on earth is, is, is whatever, whatever God's purpose on earth is for us at the time, not 
trying to dictate our own path or, or to just basically waste time on things that really have no impact on the Christian life. They've got no impact on spiritual growth. They don't, they don't impact or help other believers in their spiritual growth. And so it's just kind of like, okay, well, why are we engaged in it? Then that's, I think, Paul's point. He said uh, also avoiding the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And this statement refers to the beginning stages of the Gnostic heresy, which would overpower the early church in the centuries to come. In fact, notice that Paul calls this opposition, he says it will masquerade as knowledge. It'll, it'll masquerade as knowledge. You know, the essence of Gnostic teaching, the, the Gnostic teaching that arose in the first century was that Jesus Christ was not enough. That's kind of the essence. They would teach that Christ was not sufficient for everything in the Christian life and that one needed special knowledge that only a select initiated few possessed. And it wasn't probably as bad as having a secret handshake, but it's that idea. You know, are you, are you initiated into our group? Oh, you don't know that? Oh, that's right. Well, we know that and you don't. That's because we're the special initiated ones with special knowledge. And that really took hold as a heresy in the early church. The, it, it was there in seed form when the apostles were writing their epistles. And, and we see that really, I think, in seed form in the, the city of Colossae. And the epistle to the Colossians really addresses four heresies that probably combined ended up forming this Gnostic teaching. But, but I think even Paul is kind of addressing it here, this, the opposing arguments, these contradictory arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, this kind of special knowledge. In fact, Paul said this knowledge was not knowledge at all. Colossians 2, again, addressing kind of the, probably the seed form of this heresy that became full blown. 2, 9 through 10 says, for in him, in speaking of Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him, you have been made complete. And so Christ is more than enough for all our needs as believers. And, you know, Colossians 3, uh, just a great verse, great cross-reference here. Let me let me read Colossians 2, 3, because he says, in whom, this is speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And see, what the false teachers were trying to teach at this time was they had special knowledge. They had extra knowledge outside of Christ. They had something unique and special, unique wisdom and unique knowledge. And Paul is saying there in Colossians 2, 3, no, no, no. In Christ, you got all you need. You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're not lacking anything. You don't need to go to this, this well of false teachers to get something that you're lacking. That message is still as important for us today because oftentimes we will we will turn to other things like philosophy and psychology and experience based activities where we're we're looking for this emotional experience and what we need is what we have in the word of God and we need to be convinced of that and we need to believe that that God has communicated to us that he desires to continue to communicate to us through his word and that he wants to lead us in this life. And that's what we need more than anything. Then the next great book, the next great lecture series, whatever it is, we need the word of God. We need to know the word of God. We need to understand the word of God and we need to know 
the resources that we possess in Jesus Christ. Because once we understand that, then everything else looks like everything else just looks like trash. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't have any value once we understand what we already possess to close out the book uh, in verse 21, he says, which some have professed again, this, this knowledge, uh, if you will, and thus gone astray from the face, grace be with you. So the original meaning of profess in classical Greek was to publicly make a pledge. And so that the idea here is that some of these people in Ephesus had publicly made a pledge by this, these things that contradicted this false, falsely called knowledge, this masquerading around of knowledge. They're starting to buy into even some seed forms of this Gnostic heresy. You know, one of the dangers is once a person publicly proclaims a heretical teaching, it takes great humility to admit that they've been wrong. Some teachers, instead of admitting they're wrong, they doggedly defend their error. Once they take a public stance, it's it's really hard to walk that back for many people because now it's about saving face. And so unfortunately, by publicly affirming heretical teaching, many of these teachers have irreversibly distanced themselves from the truth. And not to open up a can of worms here at the end of the study, but go go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm flipping the wrong way. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And this is exactly what the Hebrew Christians were doing. You know, this is part of that context in the book of Hebrews that, that often gets ignored when people come to this particular chapter and section because they'll they'll look at these verses and they'll say oh well people can lose their salvation they'll say this teaches you can lose your salvation but it's it's really not teaching that at all in fact what it's teaching is that these hebrew christians were publicly affirming this heretical teaching that they still needed the animal sacrificial system even though they had put their faith in jesus christ and believed on him for eternal life and realized that he was the final and complete sacrifice. Now they were, they were hedging their bets. They were going backwards to this animal sacrificial system, wanting to kind of have a foot on both sides of this fence. And this is why, uh, when the writer of the Hebrews writes in verse four, he says, well, actually let's start one. He says, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, that's maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. In this we will do if God permits. And then notice how he words verse four through six. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, the way that verse reads directly is there's a lot of description there at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. So I'm going to kind of skip over that. And basically what it how it reads is, for it's impossible for those who are once enlightened, verse 6, if they fall away or or move away from what they've believed to renew them again to repentance. So what's it impossible to do? Well, to renew them again to repentance. It doesn't say renew them again to salvation. 
so if we have the, the proper understanding of the word repentance, it's really easy to understand what he's saying there because it's impossible to renew them again to a, to a change of mind. In other words, if they are going to publicly affirm that they need to go back to the animal sacrificial system, it's going to be impossible to change their mind about that in the future. Once they take that public stance, it's going to be very difficult. He uses the word impossible to renew them again to the mindset that what Christ did finalized the need for sacrifices. So if they go backwards, it's going to be impossible to renew them to that change of mind because they've already taken a public stance against the finished work of Christ. So just it's an example of what Paul is talking about here at the end of first Timothy six, by professing it, he says, by making a public stance, some have strayed concerning the faith. Now it doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they've strayed concerning sound doctrine. That's the point. Remember anytime faith is articulated in the scriptures, the faith it's typically referring to the body of sound doctrine, apostolic teaching. So that's what they're leaving. That's what they're straying for by buying in publicly to this false teaching that ultimately became Gnosticism. So if you're found to be teaching something that's biblically erroneous, be quick to admit your error. If someone points it out, be quick to admit it. You can easily come to a point of no return by proudly defending your position. And just remember that biblical interpretation is not about winning the argument, it's about being right. It's about getting God's meaning. And if you're, and if you're wrong and if I'm wrong, we need to be quick to recognize and to change our mind, to align ourselves with what the word of God says and allow the Bible to sit as an authority over us, not as something that we want to read our own theology or ideas into. And what's really interesting is immediately following this admonition, Paul abruptly closes his letter. See how he kind of does it. He's like, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith and he's grace be with you. Amen. And it's, and he's done. He's out. So letter E is always, though he closes his letter with a mention of grace. So Timothy needed God's grace just as badly as you and I do today. And brethren pray for one another, pray that we would take advantage um, and avail ourselves to the grace of God, where he's got us in whatever stage of life that he's got us in. That'll be it for tonight. Congratulations. Those who have made it through first Timothy. 